everyone. You're listening to the Cancer Fight Podcast, recorded in Louisville, Kentucky, and produced by the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Cancer Fight aims to highlight the stories of advocates, fighters, and survivors of all forms of cancer, as well as educate the public on cancer prevention and awareness. With the help of our guests, we explore the common qualities of what makes a successful cancer fight while equipping listeners with the information they need to learn, fight, and prevent cancer. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Fola May, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the director of the May Services Research Lab at UCLA. She has a blue chip resume, if there ever has been one, in the colorectal cancer space. She's well known for her work in healthcare disparities and equity issues around the delivery of cancer prevention. Fola, I want to reach out and say thank you so much for taking time with us today and sharing your story on Cancer Fight. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first, let's hear a little bit about you, not the academic part yet. Let's hear about how Fola became into the GI world and just tell me a little bit about your background and and, and what led you uh, into this space that we're going to talk about much more later. Absolutely. And I'll try to leave out the boring parts. Um, thank you for that question. You know, for me, I found this passion for colon cancer a little bit later in my career and kind of by surprise. I had always been fascinated by the abdomen when I was in residency and I kind of went into internal medicine thinking that I would probably pursue GI. I used to say that I thought the abdomen was this black box of mysteries and you always wanted to know where the pains or aches were coming from. And that really made me pursue gastroenterology as a profession. But it wasn't until I stepped into the field as a fellow and around this time had decided that I wanted to marry my interest with epidemiology, public health and clinical medicine. And I was fine. I was trying to find a problem to attach myself to. Um, around this time was learning a lot about healthcare disparities and inequities and also learning a lot about the unfortunate impact of cancer on the US society. So it all kind of came together in a moment for me when I realized that colon cancer had impacted my family. I have a family member who passed away to this disease and to this day think that that individual would have lived a longer life if we had more awareness about the disease and better care for him. So it was very, once, once I had you know, thought about that and come together into this realization that I was gonna pursue a research career, it was very obvious for me that colon cancer was where I was gonna start. And around that time I had started my PhD program. I did that a little bit later in my career and I was able to use that career, or I used that degree program to really explore a lot of the problems that we see in colon can cancer. Well, I, 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 I want to go back to where you started from, but I've got to, I got to read out this blue chip resume here. Oh, Yale, Cambridge, Harvard, MGH, UCLA. I mean, uh, you know, I was happy to be a visiting fellow at the Brigham and women's right. after when I was at Southwestern, but that's really amazing. So where did you start though? Did you come from a super blue chip Yale kind of family? And how did you, how did you get through there? Talk me through that. Well, I credit my parents for everything, absolutely. And I grew up in Los Angeles, where I'm speaking to you from here today. And I actually did all of my education outside of LA and eventually came back home to be near my parents. But I, I really do credit them for a lot of things. I, I grew up in a family where 
although the world wasn't necessarily telling me that everything was at my fingertips and that everything was possible, I certainly had parents who ingrained that in us. And even as a young child, you know, school wasn't always easy for me, but I had parents who I went home to and said, you can do this, you're smart, you're, you're skilled, and you're gonna find things that you're passionate about. And that really drove me forward. It drove me forward at every single step. I have a father who is a clinician. So I did have medical influence in my life. Although the degree that I've picked and the path I've picked in my medical career is very different than his. But there are some things that we have in common. And some of my earliest memories of exposure to healthcare were following him. And some of that was spending time with him in the hospital here in Los Angeles. And you know, this was at a time where you could bring your kid into the hospital with you on Saturday rounds, right? So I would right. go on rounds with him and I'd meet his patients and hear about how they have, their lives have been changed by the surgeries that he did. But the other thing that my father was very involved in and got us involved in early was that he did a lot of global health. And he spent a lot of time in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Nigeria and other parts of West Africa where he's from. He's an immigrant. He came to the United States and truly lived the American dream, but always wanted to give back. So I had the opportunity as a teenager to spend time with him in West Africa at these clinic sites where they were providing care. And just to see the villagers come from miles and miles and villages away to see doctors come from the Americas to provide critical health care was eye-opening to me. And it really struck on me that there are populations that are disadvantaged and you can do very little and change the lives of many. And that's something that's stuck with me ever since. Well, you, you talked a little bit about a family and friends exposure to cancer. And, and uh, some people, it's interesting, some people have that exposure, some people don't. Um, colon cancer was in our family as well. Uh, certainly in 1986, we didn't do screening. It wasn't even part of an algorithm. How do you think that, that, that experience, did you, did you get it when you were young or did you really understand it more as you moved into your career or, or did it have an impact when you were younger? Where, where did it come into your career time-wise? Cancer certainly impacted me as a child. Um, I lost a very important family member to colon cancer. And as a young child, I wasn't in that moment able to understand what was going on or why he was becoming sick. I wasn't able to understand that medicines weren't gonna be helpful in this situation because I had again been raised by a mother and father who, father who was in healthcare, who I thought you could cure everything with surgery. Cure everything, medicine. right. Um, so it, it really impacted me, but it wasn't until I was a bit older, until I had gone to medical school and understand how cancer works, that many cancers we don't have a cure for, and that the important thing is early detection for many cancers, that it really kind of um, made me think back to those situations as a child and realize that a lot of that situation was largely preventable if we had access not only to screening, but to earlier care. So that for sure is something that I, I carry on, on my heart every day. It's, it's you know, when, I'm, when I say that I'm grateful for what I'm able to do, I really mean it, but it's really in the capacity of, of doing service to, to my family that I think has gained from so much knowledge about this disease and, and fortunately has been able to protect themselves through screening. All right, great. Well, well fast forward me. Now you're a GI fellow, You've, you're in the middle of this search. When did you sort of get infected with I'm going to do everything in my space to prevent colon cancer. I mean, because it, it happens to people, right? I mean, we have a community yeah. of people who are downright dedicated to this. 
what was that aha moment for Folame? For me, you know, I think it kind of came on all of a sudden, but there were clearly um, little grains of it along the way. Um, so I had a funny path, right? I did undergrad and then I said, you know, I'm going to become a public health person. So I actually went abroad to the UK for a year and I studied epidemiology. I'm fascinated with numbers. I love math. And I really got to study disease at a population level. And I got to study international health, which as I mentioned, I had already had an exposure to. So I was sitting there doing this epidemiology degree, thinking that I was going to become a public health scientist and, and change the world through numbers. But sometimes Time during the course of that year, I missed that I wasn't getting that one-on-one -on -one with patients. And it was during that time that it really kind of ingrained in me that I had to go to medical school. I had to pursue medical, you know, medicine formally. And I had been thinking about it for a long time, but wasn't sure which path I was going to take. So I dragged my butt back to uh, the United States and I enrolled in medical school. And, you know, it was the patients that I saw. I was always interested in hematology and oncology, but I was always fascinated that with a lot of the solid oncology cases, you could literally cut the tumor out. And then even, you know, as a fellow, fast forward and looking at colon cancer specifically, this disease is so preventable. It's not preventable for everyone. And unfortunately, there are times when patients are just so young, there isn't a family history, there's no clues that it's going to happen. But in the majority of cases, if we screen at the right time, if we pay attention to symptoms, we can actually do very well. And I love telling my, one of the things I love doing in clinic is convincing people who don't want to get screened that it's worth getting screened. And what I try and tell them among many things is that if I can diagnose your colon cancer at stage one, there is a 90% chance or higher that you're going to be alive for, in five years. But if you wait around, get screened late, and you're diagnosed at stage four, that survival drops to 10 to 15%. And just hearing that alone empowers people about their health and really pushes them to get the care that they know that they deep down really need. Right. Patients are the captain. You just have to they convince the them, captain. right? Yeah. And it's, you know what, it's, you asked me why I stick, it's, it's actually, you know, a lot of people talk about breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer. There just weren't as many people talking about colon cancer. And I thought that was really shocking. It's the second most common cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. Second, it's impacting both men and women, yet few people are talking about it. It's underfunded. There are fewer organizations that focus on it. So I was excited about coming into this area that there was this disease that was so common, so impactful, and so few people working in it. So it really became a no-brainer for me, just given my family history, my interest in oncology, and also the need in this particular disease. Well, a lot of folks who are clinicians uh, started off in basic science and research, and they talk about going from bench to the bedside. Well, you really went from the spreadsheet to the bedside <laughs> with your both not only a, a background in economics, but also in public health. Tell me how that really informed and altered your perspective as you began to approach this and then led you into the disparity issues that uh, are, are, have been known for years around colon cancer that I think we're now beginning to focus on and, and hopefully develop solutions for because focusing is the first part of solution. So tell me how that epidemiology public health background led into your thinking and your career. Absolutely. And I think it's the contrast of the, those two worlds that makes my job so exciting because 
Colon cancer is a public health problem and that's epidemiology. It's numbers, it's the population level. But it also is a one-on-one -on -one patient problem. And what I really love about working in this area is that whether I'm talking to a patient one-on-one -on -one on about his or her risk factors, barriers to getting screened or barriers to treatment, or whether I am looking at population level numbers on impact of disease, there's so much that we can do to impact how people are behaving, whether or not they're participating in screening services, and how many lives that we save. So, you know, being having the physician hat on, I love going into the clinic and sitting down across, or sitting down across from patients and talking to them about you know, what is the colon? Why does it get cancer? How can we prevent it? And having hilarious conversations about, no, your prostate's not the same as your colon. And when your doctor did the rectal exam with their finger, that was not the same as the colonoscopy. You know, having those conversations are with women who say, you know, I always hear about breast cancer, but I haven't heard much about colon cancer. I thought it impacted men only. So being able to be in the clinic and have that opportunity to have still that one-to-one -one patient interaction is critical to me. But the reality is this is a population level problem. And a lot of the solutions need to happen at the population level, whether that's from policy and screening guidelines and, and really um, having more of an organized approach to screening programs in the United States, to, whether, to how health systems are organized to capture their eligible populations and who's screened. So I get to throw in also my quality hat because I get to talk about how a big place like UCLA Health or in the VA, the other health system I work with, can get their entire population screened. Because we can't go to each patient one-on-one -on -one and attack this problem. We have to have mechanisms to talk to groups of people and to understand those barriers at the group level. And I think that actually ties in nicely to, I'll say briefly, that ties in nicely to the disparities, right? Because there's also a role for tailoring that message for the communication, for the communities that you want to reach. So if I'm trying to reach a community of white men who we know are dying, dying more at a younger age from rectal cancers, that's very different information and approach than if I'm trying to reach black women or black men. So you, I get to tie in my training in health equity and public health with the population level de de details, but also using the one-on-one -on -one patient interaction information that we know is helpful. Right, and, and, I, and I think that's critical because you're, you're really honing in on it because it is gonna be a systems issue. I'll never forget when I was started to get into this, uh, you know, I, I'd found this study that people seen in the VA, which was a great leveler, you know, the military is a great leveler, yeah. that, that many VAs had very similar outcomes, regardless of race, even though out in the real world, we saw these massive disparities. But however, in this system, there wasn't as much. And I don't think that's, you know, perfectly true. But to me, that was a real visual spot about what a system can do to help erase disparities. And so uh, now you're, you're a world expert on disparities in healthcare. And I want to I'm going to preface this by talking a little bit about Chad Bozeman. You did a story uh, with CNN. You wrote about it. But, uh, I use it a lot. I put a picture of him and Stanley up. Who are, they're at the podium together. And I say, I know a million guys like Stan Lee. And I've tried to talk to them about getting a colonoscopy till I'm blue in the face. But I'll bet you Chad Bozeman never got a single message when, by the time he was 39 
about his risk for, and, and again, I know you're not his doc and I don't know his story either, but statistically he probably never heard anything about colorectal cancer. And that's the perfect contrast to where we've been and where we have to go. And so how do you look at the disparities that are becoming more and more apparent and maybe apparent may not the worst, but more discussed, more, more on the table to talk about. Walk us into that and how you led into that in your career. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've been seeing disparities in healthcare and health outcomes since the beginning of this country. It's not new that there are inequities in everything from cancer to heart disease to life expectancy. I mean, pretty much across the board, whether you look at whether black infants are likely to survive after being born in a hospital, all the way to mortality and life expectancy, there are differences between white Americans and black Americans. And I think that the, the root of that are what we call these social determinants of health. They are the, the way that we live and work in America. They are the way that we live our lives. They are the, the environmental, social, and other risk factors that are a part of the fabric that are this country. And that unfortunately, just proportionally negatively impact some communities over others. And that is the underlying factor behind any disparity, whether you're talking about COVID-19 or colon cancer. So for those of us who've been working in the world of health equity for some time, we've been, we've been seeing and talking and yelling about health disparities for a long time. And, and you know, I, I credit the people who've come way before me and who've been doing this work for a long time and who've trained me. But I think what's unique about this particular moment in time is that because of COVID-19, we as a globe are looking at one disease all together at once. And in that, when there are trends or important things that are happening with that disease being COVID-19, we are all getting that information and we all are made aware. So COVID-19 has kind of shown this bright light on healthcare disparities. And yes, it's been about COVID, but it's given us the opportunity to open the door to conversations about other health disparities, of which one is colorectal cancer. Um, unfortunately, in this country, African-Americans are 20% more likely to get a diagnosis of colon cancer and 40% more likely to die of the disease compared to white Americans. And also, unfortunately, African-Americans are less likely to participate in screening, which we know can be life-saving. And when we look at the trends in age at the time of diagnosis, we know for all Americans that number is coming down. We used to think of colon cancer as a disease that impacted older Americans, older by over 50. But now we're seeing more and more, I know, right? Not older, I'd say middle-aged Americans. But, but, but now we're actually seeing more colon cancer in people who are under the age of 50. So for, unfortunately for people like Chadwick Boseman, and I can't speak specifically about his case, but I can speak about the millions or thousands, I should say, of other people like him who were young and black and who had this disease, it was kind of a, a double impossible situation in that unfortunately having black race put him at higher risk. And then unfortunately being younger now is also a, a thing where we see more disease. So yes, we need to be more aware about colon cancer happening, not just in people who are over 50, but in all Americans. And I think a lot of the effort that's being done through a lot of the organizations that we work through, whether it's Fight CRC or the National Colorectal Roundtable, is we're trying to make Americans aware that this disease isn't an old person's disease. And that it, when you're young, 
you need to be screened at the time that's indicated, whether that's 45, 40, or 50. But also, if you have symptoms, regardless of your age, even if you're in your 30s, if you're having symptoms, you need to be seen by a provider. Those symptoms need to be taken seriously, and we need to do diagnostic studies that typically include colonoscopy. Well, listen, 50 is a dirty word here in Kentucky. We never say 50. That's the wrong. <laughs> it's only 45. It's the new 50. Uh, I, think we're all, I think we're all moving there. I think, I know. you know, with this new guideline, right? We're stoked. I think sometime this, uh, at the end of the first quarter or certainly by the summer, we should have a unified age, which is great. We think it's going to help to focus the beam of attention in that 40 to 45 space so that we can, in fact, really narrow down that piece. Because our saying is 45 is the finish line for communication, not the starting point. So you need to have been done by the time you're 45 about assessing risk, talking about options, shared decision-making, all of those issues. 45 is the end. That's not the starting point. So we, we, we think about it. Tell, tell us about, you know, how, uh, first of all, give us a, a definition of disparity. Because I think of Chad Bozeman again. There's a guy who I, I, I wish my net worth was uh, was Chadwick's. I, I certainly can't sing nor dance nor act like him. He had, in many ways, you know, a great socioeconomic background. But disparity is more than race or color or, or your socioeconomics. It's some it's some amalgam of all. Help help our listeners understand what health equity is in that bigger picture. Yes. So we have health equity as a nation when all individuals, regardless of background, so that's your gender, your race, your social economic status, have access to the same high level of health outcomes. So in a perfect health equity state, all individuals, regardless of where you come from, can have high quality of healthcare and high level of health. We have health disparities when we don't have health equity because there are differences in health attainment by your background, whether that be your gender or your race and your ethnicity. So when we say health disparities, it's a little bit confusing because there's an implication that we're talking about racial and ethnic disparities, right. but you can have health disparities by gender. We know that men and women have different um, health outcomes. You can have health disparities by social economic status. And there are actually many studies that show that some of the disparities that we see by race and ethnicity in the United States are actually at least in part explained by some of the differences in socioeconomic status. So in other words, being under low income or poor in America is also um, you know, an exposure to higher to worse health outcomes. And again, it's back to this concept of social determinants of health. And these are like the structural, the structural, the social, the governmental policies that have put one community or group of people at an advantage compared to other. I always like to use the example of neighborhoods, right? So, you know, for a long time in this country, there was the unfortunate practice of redlining. When even the United States government participated in labeling cities or, or neighborhoods as worthy of investment or not. And if you lived in a neighborhood that was unfortunately uh, labeled red, it wasn't worthy of investment. It wasn't worthy of mortgages. It wasn't more worthy of development. Often was located very close to a freeway, even other environmental 
environmental toxins as we've seen in some states in our country. If you live in an environment like that, you're gonna be exposed to environmental toxins, which are gonna impact your health. You're gonna live in a space where you aren't safe to be outside and physically active. You have access to less parks. You probably have less communal space. You might even be exposed to roaches in the home, which we know, for example, is, is a risk factor for asthma in young kids. So these environmental and social structures lead downhill to other to health problems, which all become the precursor conditions for cancer, right? Lung disease, overweight, diabetes. These are all the things that we know are related and poor diet. I mean, if you live in a food desert, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat processed food. You need lots of, of things that are unhealthy for you. And we know that these things over time can increase your chances of many different cancers, including colon cancer. So these health disparities is really the study of not only measuring the differences, because we know there are differences and there have been people who've been studying the differences for a long time. It's going beyond that and, say, and saying though why the differences are there and even one step beyond that into the implementation science of designing interventions to narrow or eliminate the disparities that we see. So we call that whole body of research health disparities or health equity research and you can be anywhere along the spectrum. I mean, I have colleagues that are focused more on the end of under, under, under covering the disparities and quantifying them. And then other colleagues who are more on the end of the implementation science where we're in the community trying to embed interventions that we know will reduce disparities. Well, you know, I, I live on the action side of uh, that world. So talk to us a little bit about, and you can frame it in colon cancer or be broader, your choice. How do we reduce disparities? And I know that's such a simplistic question to such a multifactorial problem. But if you can give us that high level space, uh, we were speaking earlier with someone and he thought the single most important thing was to have a unified healthcare system that everybody had access to uh, rather than the patchwork of private, public, Medicaid, some states, not Medicaid, others. What Tell us that overarching approach, if you will, because I don't think maybe you may, you may be able to solve it. You're full of May, right? I mean, your parents well, have empowered that. you, of course. <laughs> all that. But, but, but how do well, we I'm begin not. to, <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> how do we begin to approach it from your standpoint uh, yeah. as you look at it? Because you're well-studied, well-educated. You're probably in as great a position as anyone. Uh, how do we begin to approach it? Because I think people want to get on the other side of this and start solving problems. I mean, thank you for that question. And honestly, there are so many incredible people who are working in the area of implementation science and eliminating healthcare disparities. And it's, I feel very fortunate to have come up into a career in science where it's being studied formally. Um, implementation science didn't really exist as a part of public health or clinical research for a while. So these are all kind of new concepts. I, I think that it's a multi-pronged problem that's going to require multiple component solutions. I think at the very basic level, we have a problem with data in this country. We do not uniformly collect data on race and ethnicity. And most hospital records, if you query the, the, the electronic health record, you're going to have something of about a third of the population with no recorded race or ethnicity data. And even for the population that have recorded race and ethnicity data, it may not be accurate because it may have been inputted by a provider who doesn't really know the patient's background or someone else like a, an operator who's working in the health system, but not the patient. 
So we need to, in this country, have a bigger focus, and I think it needs to have come from government down, on even recording race and ethnicity. We're seeing this a lot with the vaccine rollout right now for, for COVID-19, and that we know there are disparities in, in Blacks and Latinos getting, less, getting the vaccine less than white Americans. But in some states, we don't even have the data because they haven't recorded who they're giving the vaccines to. So again, another example of we need the data to show that these disparities exist. Once we have the data, then we need the scientific support to do the research. So right now, a lot of this research is supported by the NIH, the National um, Institutes of Health. It's also supported by other organizations like the American Cancer Society and others who funded people to do this kind of work. I think, however, it's far unfund, unfund, underfunded, and especially in colon cancer, I think we're far underfunded. So there needs to be an increase and I think it needs to come from Congress to, to provide the NIH with more federal funding support to support researchers who are doing this work and who are doing it in a scientific evidence-based way. So I think that that's another thing that's gonna be critical as well. The other thing that I'll, I'll throw in there is that we need more people of color doing this work. It's not to say that you can't have white researchers or white, white doctors doing research in health disparities. There are plenty of my colleagues who are excellent at this work and they don't come from minority backgrounds. But we know that when you train black and brown physicians and when you give them the opportunity to have STEM or scientific careers, they are more likely to give back to underserved communities and they're more likely to do work that benefits their community. So I feel strongly that there needs to be a stronger pipeline for individuals who are of color who want to go into science and into research to do this work. And then, you know, so we've talked about data, we've talked about funding, we've talked about um, diversity and health and science. And then after that, there just needs to be a public focus on doing this work in the right locations. So I always say that I'm sitting on the west side of LA and the ivory tower that is UCLA. There's very little that I'm gonna to do to address health equity sitting here, okay? I have to get out of the west side and go to South LA, go to East LA, go to Northeast LA, to areas where we have our Latino and our black populations living, where we're seeing these health disparities. And we need to develop partnerships with communities and work together, us as the scientists, them as the people who know the community and who are embedded in the community to do this work. So I think that's a lot, right? That's a lot to ask our nation to do. It's a lot to ask science and medicine to champion, but I don't think we're gonna get beyond healthcare disparities unless we do at least those things. What do you think about the balance with NIH dollars being spent? Uh, I, I would argue probably five to one they're spent on chemotherapy for advanced cancer management rather than preventative strategies and reduction or elimination of disparities. That's always been a hugely frustrating piece for me is that, uh, you know, my tax dollars to go for lung cancer treatment, why, why don't we spend more of those on getting kids never to smoke or reducing radon? I mean, I think we, yeah. you know, one of my concerns about the NIH always is that, you know, they're so far away and they're so driven by, by big pharma uh, and money. Uh, and, and a lot of the things that you're talking about are, are, are classic public health pieces, education, behavioral, structural, community related. Uh, just a thought. I mean, I, I don't know what you're thinking is. They're the, that's where the big money goes. So, I mean, you know, if you're doing the bank robber analogy, that's it. But 
I'm always disappointed on the ratio that we spend on treatment, particularly for colorectal cancer, to your point, mm-hmm. right? The investment, the lever in colon cancer isn't in treating advanced cancer, although we've made incredible strides, right? I mean, treating oh, yeah. colon it's cancer now is just like unbelievable compared to the old days, but still that's not the lever, right? You know, oh, I, like, I agree with you completely. Yeah. So it's yeah, really and I'll say a word on that because I think, you know, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I agree completely that we are underfunding prevention, but we are a fix it. This is a result of the fact that we're a fix it country. We're not a country. <laughs> we're a country that there's a problem. Then you throw a bunch of money at it. Right. We are this, we have this Americans have this kind of fix it approach to everything is it's not really a problem until it's a problem. And then we're going to throw money at it. And unfortunately that's not the best approach to health right? You know, you really would do better if you spent your dollars on the prevention side of things. Um, so, you know, I, I think that definitely needs to be stressed more in NIH and other agencies. And I think just health in general, even how we teach medical students, I think there needs to be more of a focus on preventive health. But it might not be just taking too much dollars away from the people who are working on the treatment side and the survivorship side, because that's really important, but we certainly need to add more dollars to the prevention and, and early detection side. And I think that's that's that point is important because I think they both can can thrive if well supported. Yeah, it just it's so fascinating. You know, someone said I heard someone say about Congress, they do two things white. They ignore big problems and then overreact when they happen. <laughs> you know, and I oh, thought that was <laughs> that was almost the perfect description. But 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 to that. Think of what's happened with COVID and spending. I mean, no longer is anybody even wondering about budgetary issues and how much it costs, right? All of a sudden, you know, these cost discussions and cost effectiveness things, they're gone. I mean, I've never, I haven't heard one cost effectiveness study about COVID vaccination. Uh, There are many studies around it. I'm sure I'm just not reading it, but, uh, but again, it's just, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, behavioral response that we've developed at the federal level. Uh, and, 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 and I'm with you. I think a more strategic, long-term thinking and investment around it would do us a world of good. I mean, we would, we, would have spent, we would have spent a fraction of the dollars if last March we had worked on preventing and mitigating this pandemic. And now we're going to be trillions of dollars in the hole because, again, it, we had a fix-it approach as opposed to a preventive approach. Or colon cancer, any or any, cancer, any health problem, or smoking yeah. cessation, right? It just lets you know if you throw enough at it, you can eventually get something done. But yeah. I mean, it's just not where the value is in in you know when you have a limited sum. Uh, so I think it's a fascinating piece. But so uh, talk a little bit about your structural work. We do a lot of health systems work. We we've passed many laws in Kentucky around uh, lowering barriers. We have a program for the un and underinsured where they can access colonoscopy or stool-based testing, genetic testing, in fact, is covered here by our Medicaid orders. Tell us about some of the system and policy issues that you're focused on in California. I work with Stoney Anderson uh, all the time and Jim Allison, so I know you guys have had struggles out there. Where, in terms of colorectal cancer and uh, eliminating some of these health issues, are, are, is California leading on in policy, or at least where is your direction? Well, thank you for that question. And, um, you know, Kentucky has done some phenomenal work. I remember very early when I was just getting into this field and thinking, okay, the leaders are clearly New York and Kentucky because they've got, they've got inflatable colons everywhere. 
<laughs> they're providing free services. So, I mean, kudos to, to your state for being at the forefront of recognizing this as a public health problem and trying to address it. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned C4. So that's the California Colorectal Coalition, which I'm part of. Um, and I'm, I'm proud to be part of that coalition. We are a group of scientists and clinicians and advocates and it includes even patient survivors of colon cancer who are here in this state to try and push everything from research about colorectal cancer to advocacy and state policy. We focus on a lot of things, but being the diverse state that we are, a lot of our efforts are about equitable access to colorectal cancer screening. California is, or at least Los Angeles County where I live is what we call a majority minority county. So believe it or not, the majority of people in Los Angeles County at 74% identify with being a minority. So it's important for us and all the work we do in California, which is a pretty diverse state overall, um, is, is really rooted in this, this goal towards health equity around colorectal cancer. A lot of the policy work that we've been doing in addition is about eliminating cost barriers for people who want to get colorectal cancer screening and care. And for a long time, we've been dealing with unfortunate loopholes and government policies that have made it very tricky for patients who are trying to navigate how to prevent colorectal cancer for, for themselves and for their family members. So for example, you know, in, in some insurance policies, if you have a colonoscopy for screening, but they find a polyp and remove it, you can incur a cost because that, that is an intervention at that point which is nonsense, right? Because the whole point of the colonoscopy is to find polyps and remove them. But we've recently had some success more at the national level at, at limiting these barriers um, that patients were seeing, getting, uh, getting stuck with a large bill for a preventive measure that they were told was going to be free. The other one that we've really championed in C4 and are, are working really hard to, to um, improve, especially in our state, but also nationally, is the cost um, that some patients will accrue if they have a stool-based screening test like a FIT or a Cologuard and have an abnormal result, they might present to a health system for a colonoscopy as they should because the whole point of stool-based screening is that it's a two-step process. But some of those patients are also stuck with a bill for that colonoscopy because it's considered a diagnostic procedure after the positive FIT FOBT or Cologuard. So it's another unfortunate loophole. I don't think the, the, the peoples who wrote the policies and laws intended it to be that way, but unfortunately it's how it's been interpreted. And we have to go state by state and even at a national level to get some of these cost barriers eliminated for our patients. And it's most important for our low income patients. I'm gonna challenge you today that we need to solve that second one this year. Because I think we're, so too. We're not going to get, we're not going to meet any of our, our our goals about the challenges we face until we do that. So I just got to exactly. say, I got I got a soapbox in here. Number one, <clears throat> a fit is not a screening test. A fit and a colonoscopy when it's positive is a screening yes. procedure. <clears throat> Same thing with Cologuard. <clears throat> and the fact that this diagnostic, I believe, comes back when we didn't use FOBT for colon cancer screening, we looked for stool and blood in your stool as a way to diagnose some other problem. This yeah. terminology occurred before we even did colon cancer screening at a population level. And so the, the yeah. issues are, first of all, it's not a loophole. I love loopholes. I, any chance I get a loophole, I like to use it. <clears throat> this is a bait and switch. 
you're choosing a program that's pragmatic. Yeah. It's lower cost from a population standpoint, but it has to include this other piece. And so we're, we're, we're losing our cost effectiveness. We're getting in the way of folks with health disparity issues because many of them choose stool testing over colonoscopy. Yes, absolutely. Your endoscopy center and mine will probably call the patients and let them know that if they find something, they're going to perhaps incur a cost. That's a big barrier. So we have got to push over the uh, completion colonoscopy bait and switch. And that's what we call it, completion colonoscopy, because that's what it really is, right? It's a part of your screening exam and it completes your exam. Sort of like, uh, what was the the movie with Tom Cruise, you know, you complete me. What was that? The, oh, the, um, <laughs> yeah. oh, that movie. I'm seeing it right now. I know. Uh, uh, whatever his name was. Anyway, that needs Why to be our I thing. Like we need to have that thing where you complete me colonoscopy, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was the show me the money movie, right? Show me the right, money. Right, right. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I'm going to reach out. First time we've had no, a chance I'm... to talk, but I'm going to challenge you that we're going to, because we will not be able to succeed in any of our great challenges that we face right now, which are catching up from COVID, onboarding the 45 to 49, or getting rid of health equities. And especially now, right? Because we're considering broadening the screening eligibility pool. We, if we, if we get a finalized United States Preventive Service Task Force recommendation, it's going to be 45 to 49-year-olds who are also included. That's an additional 21, 22 million Americans. The only way that we get those people screened is if we use multimodalities. We can't demand that they all get colonoscopies. We need to insist that things like stool-based screening tests fit Cologuard are acceptable methods to be screened. And I agree with you completely. I mean, a lot of the work I've been doing with my quality hat here at UCLA and also in the federally qualified health centers in which our research team works is we're trying to get providers to introduce the fit as a two-step process. So instead of telling to saying to a patient, I'm going to give you this fit kit, complete it, and you'll be done with your colorectal cancer screening, you need to say to your patient, this is a fit kit. It's a two-step process. Nine percent, or you know, five to nine percent of you will have a positive result, and then you will need the colonoscopy to finish the screening process. And I just think we've lost that point of communication, even at the provider level. Um, it's really been lost on getting that information to the patients, and that's going to be critical well, the now. Problem, <clears throat> the problem is nobody's winning with it, right? No. Insurance companies want their patients to be screened for colon cancer because they know there's value in it. They're losing. Hospitals are losing because they're not getting people in for colonoscopies when they're told there's a copay now and they thought the screening process was free, right? Patients aren't getting the benefit. So it's one of those issues where there's no winner. So why can we not with Fight CRC, uh, our, our buddies and yours that we, we work together with, we have got to push that over this year. This has got to get to the top of the list. And you know what happens? So we have a lot of the conversations about this with members of Congress, because that's what we do at an advocacy level. And as soon as you sit down and explain it, they get it. But I think it's just the science. Sometimes people don't realize what's happening and that if you don't get that colonoscopy, what the heck was the point of the fit? You know, what's the whole point of the fit test is to determine who needs a colonoscopy. So I think it is 
telling it to the right people, getting them on our side, and then getting legislation passed that will help protect our patients so that we don't have this problem moving forward. But yeah, right. no, I mean, there's, there's um, some of my colleagues, Samir Gupta is a huge proponent of this. I mean, yeah. we also think there sure. needs to be a metric for it because the hospitals are getting reimbursed by their screening rates, right? HEDIS measures, you have to get to a certain level to get higher reimbursement. Why aren't, why aren't we also considering whether they're completing that screening process? There should be a measure for the percent of your patients with a positive fit or cologuard that get a colonoscopy because that's really your screening, your screening rate. Um, so we're trying to, trying to push that on that angle as well. Good. Well, I, I'm with you guys. And I think that uh, we, we can do it because I, again, I don't really think there's anybody who's arguing against it as much as we're just caught with this crazy language exactly. written 30 years ago. Exactly. It doesn't even apply. And, and uh, so that's another huge topic, but that's great. Well, that's, that's a ton of space. Now I've got to ask you some personal things as we sort of come into this space. Personal. Certainly. Well, not personal that way, but just professionally personal. Uh, I know that you faced adversity. Everybody has, if you've gone through medical school and everything, you have any cues for, for people who, who are fighting adversity? Cause in your case, it might've been, a professional piece and other people and our listeners, it's a cancer they're fighting. Are there clues to how you have dealt well with adversity as it's come into your life? Absolutely. Um, I have dealt with adversity, I think, at every step of my training, my education, and my life. And it's very challenging. And I always say that every day isn't going to be a good day. You're not going to be able to conquer all the evil voices internally and externally every day. But you have to have a strong internal ethic and self-belief to really, um, over the long term, conquer those devils. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like trying to beat a cancer, and I'm not going to compare, compare anything that I've been through to that. But of the patients that I've cared for, and of the, the individuals that I know who have beat cancer, they have a strong sense of survivorship. They have a strong belief that even in the worst scenarios, even being diagnosed with a late stage, that they're going to beat this. And I do see a parallel between that and people who are, are disadvantaged for other aspects of their life, whether it be the color of their skin, the environment or neighborhood that they live in, their background. You have to very strongly believe that you are capable, that you are equal, that you are able. And you have to find those things that you are passionate about that you feel are most important, you hang on to those things like there is nothing else to hang on to. I think for me, um, in particular, my, my family has been inc incredibly supportive. And this is the family that I was born into, meaning my parents, my brother, but also the family that I've married into with my husband and his family. I, I've been very blessed to be surrounded by people who've always wanted to lift me up. And I think a lot of people who don't have that experience, it's even harder. It's harder to walk your day-to-day -day life. It's harder to be cancer. So I, I find that it's, it's holding on to that internal power and self-belief, but also leaning on the individuals outside of yourself who you know can pull you through dark times. And we try to do that a lot with our cancer patients. We try to help them identify their allies we try to help them reach out to individuals who can help them. And, and people are, are very strong and not very humble sometimes, but these are situations in which it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to get other people's opinion and it's okay to lean on others. Do you think faith plays a big role in uh, 
people as they fight cancer, they, they deal with various battles they face? I'm glad you brought that up. I, I do. That's my personal belief. I think that it's been very important for me in my life and the battles that I've faced. I, ha I don't think I've gotten through any of them without my faith. I know that's not for everyone and I respect that, but I think for people who do have faith and who that has been an important part of their life, that can be essential or critical to their ab the ability to beat a disease and, and to really just come to terms with the challenges that they're facing day to day. <clears throat> All right, I'm gonna give you some lightning round questions. Uh -oh. <clears throat> Pithy answers, you ready? Okay. Structural screening versus stool-based screening. Whatever test you can get done. <clears throat> Why can't we take a family cancer history? Oh, no time. <laughs> There's no time. You have 15 minutes to see a primary care patient. It's, it's an unfair system but everybody's on their phone doing social media. You don't think they have time to plug in their family history into an algorithm if we could get it in front of them? I think we're going to make this a longer answer because I do think there are ways to collect family history, but I think leaving, leaving it to the primary care provider, it's not going to happen. So these portals where patients can log into their health record and put in their race and ethnicity, put in their background, put in their family history, that's going to revolutionize the information that we have to understand the, the, the familial effects on cancers and all disease outcomes. So I'm all for those systems where we're empowering patients to provide us with information about their health. Right, well, I, I would agree with you, but I'd, I'd add to that, that we then need the computer to take that family history and apply it to evidence-based guidelines for, for risk. And then the clinician needs a printed out report. Hey, your patient has these risks. They should start screening at 40 or they qualify for genetic testing because they're anti-ovarian cancer at, at, at 30 years old. So I think the computers have to do more work. I'm tired of doing work for computers, quite frankly. <laughs> I want the computers to, to do a little work for us. And that's, and I think that's a goal of a lot of the precision medicine institutes that we're seeing pop all over the country. You know, we don't have time to talk about this today, but we have to think about issues of equity, right? Because uh, the reality is that a lot of these precision medicine algorithms are oh, built sure. using non-diverse patient samples. A lot of diverse or you know, ethnic and racial minorities don't have access to even these devices or these systems. So we do have to, especially with a health equity lens, think about what that artificial intelligence means for health equity outcomes. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned men because they're the biggest population of people with the biggest disparity because they don't even have doctors till they're 40 or 50. I don't know. you? Right. How are they ever going to hear anything? Well, luckily, um, men who have found a partnership <laughs> in their lives are more likely to live longer. <laughs> so if you're if you're thinking about having a significant other, it's a good idea because they will force you to go to the doctor. They were forced you to get screened and you're likely to live a longer and healthier life. Uh, you know, you know the joke on the other side of that, right? What's the joke on the other side? The joke is that the men live longer once they have a stable partner, but they're more willing to die at the end. Oh, come on. <laughs> That's an old joke for married people. You're too young to even have heard you that. You get to decide your attitude. That's what I would say. <laughs> 100%. Okay. Why do we underuse genetic testing so much? Why are gastroenterologists so crappy at utilizing genetic testing? They don't understand how to use it. You think that needs to be more important than the 18th biological for inflammatory bowel disease? 
Oh, I thought this was like a lightning round. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can go <laughs> on for hours about this. I okay. think that it's newer and we just haven't gotten the information down. I don't think providers know when they're supposed to do it, when they're not supposed to do it, or even how to do it. They might not even be in a health system where they have access to genetic specialists. There's so many problems here. Absolutely. All right. But an area that we need to work on. Agree? Absolutely. Top of the list. One of the top of the list. All right, great. Any positive disruptive technology that we should be looking forward to that you wanna let us know about in the cancer prevention or early detection business? I mean, if we can get these serum screening studies down, that will change the game. And no gastroenterologist wants to say that, but I will come out and say it because you know we'll, we'll lose colonoscopy. But the reality is we've been trying to screen Americans for colorectal cancer since the mid eighties, late eighties our screening rate is hovering at 67%. It's far below the screening rates for any other cancer that we screen. So there are just deep barriers to this problem that it will be hard to overcome without aggressive efforts. It will be helpful to have other modalities, more accessible modalities. I think we're at like the second or third generation of these serum um, studies for colorectal cancer screening. They have a ways to go, but if we can perfect those, they will help. Right, but this is the year. It's going to happen this year. There's, two, there's been a huge consolidation in the market. Uh, uh, a company named Grail was uh, acquired by Illumina, which is the major sequencing, and then Exact Science purchased uh, Thrive, uh, yeah. which was which is the Johns Hopkins piece. So I'm expecting to see this stuff on the market. And what I always tell people is. Are you going to be okay if colonoscopy is the way we diagnose and screen for colon cancer a thousand years from now? I always think of the Star Trek episode, right? I mean, are we going to be doing that in a thousand years? You don't, you don't think we're going to make more progress? But, but the issue is progress is right here. Multi-cancer early detection testing will probably be released in 2021. So I think you're very right. GI guys got to wrap their head around this. It's you've, got high, you've got high hopes for 2021. We'll see. I mean, I think certainly certain populations were already <laughs> saying as an indication for for it. I try to reassure my GI colleagues that if, if it's more people screened, there's still going to be what, somewhere between five to 10% positives, even 12% in some of these. We're still going to be doing a lot of colonoscopies, probably even more if we can get more people screened. That's millions of people coming into the fold. We're going to have enough work ahead of us. hundred percent, hundred percent. Hey, do you want to give a shout out to anybody, Fola, uh, who's helped you and sort of given you direction, your institution? And I know we talked a little bit about Fight CRC. You want to give a shout out to anybody? Yeah, I mean, for fear of leaving people out, I'm, I'm always worried about giving shout outs. But what I will say is that I've had a lot of incredible mentors and other people in my life um, since the time I was in high school onward. They know who they are. I'm grateful for them every day and I tell them very often. And then specifically, I wanna say thank you to my division here at UCLA um, because my division chief is especially um, supportive of me and has allowed me to do um, this research, which is you know, a little bit unique in our, in our field of GI and also to do our aggressive campaigning about colorectal cancer awareness, which we're very proud of here at UCLA. I also wanna thank our, my, my partners and my colleagues and my teachers and mentors here at the Center for Health Equity, which is housed in the School of Public Health here, and just have learned such a great deal working with those colleagues. Um, and as you mentioned, um, Fight CRC and C4, which I kind of, and are the groups that I think are me in the now as I'm trying to learn more and more about how we can use research to inform policy. So always excited to work with those groups and the others that I've started to work with as well. Okay, Doc, 
So this is one doc to another. I would, probably would have been your professor if I was out there in the ERCP room. So Dr. Oh, no, Mitten, you know what? Me in the ERCP room is all that lead on. Nope. For sure. So follow up, Dr. May. What, as you look across the landscape with your expertise and background, what is your prescription for a successful cancer fight as we look forward? Oof. That's a loaded question, my friend. Um, I, I do believe deeply that we all need to get on the same page about the screening age recommendations. I think it's very confusing for patients, for health systems who are trying to figure out how to best provide care for their population. So I'm hopeful that pretty immediately and hopefully shortly after USPFTF is finalized, that we'll all at least be on the same page. I don't think we all need to agree about it, but we need to have policies that we all are shooting for simultaneously. And then I think beyond that, um, we, we just need better comfort in talking about this disease. As I mentioned, you know, we all go pink for breast cancer. I mean, even the NFL is going pink for breast cancer. Um, we talk about lung cancer because, you know, we can directly correlate that to tobacco use. I just don't hear colon cancer being talked about as, as much. And quite honestly, when I tell people it's a number two killer, they're shocked. They think I must be wrong because it's not the cancer that really comes to the top of mind. So I think that we need to continue this national conversation about colon cancer and also about the symptoms for young adults so that they make sure that they get checked out even when they're before screening age. And then the third thing that I'll say in answer to your question, I know I probably asked you for one thing, but I'm gonna go for three, is that I hope that we continue to, to move forward in this fight against colorectal cancer and all cancers with a health equity lens. And that health equity lens needs to extend from everything from the, the across the entire cancer care continuum, whether you're talking about risk factors, prevention, early detection, treatment, or survivorship. Because the reality is, is that the disparity is at every pillar. And we need individuals to focus on how to make sure that we have equitable care for all Americans. Well, Fola, listen, it has been an absolute pleasure not only to meet you, but spend an hour with you. And you've got an infectious uh, sense about you. And it makes me want to come out and work with you and bring you to Kentucky and and get some stuff done, right? Uh, you know, we're when we, since you're in Hollywood, you know, they talked about the lights, camera, action. Yeah. We like the action part, right? Okay, I got you. <laughs> we fuss around too much with the lights and the cameras here, I'm sure. <laughs> no. Anyway, really, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and away from your family to uh, share your story with us and share your perspectives about this most uh, preventable and treatable disease. So I can't wait to meet you in person. And, and uh, if we can ever help you in California with our experience here in Kentucky, you know, we're happy to do it. I, I can't wait to meet in person as well. I'm gonna hold you to working with us on this fit positive problem or abnormal fit problem. And I wanna say thank you to you for all the incredible the work that you do for our community and this problem, which is colorectal cancer. Um, you've made meaningful impact. It's an honor to be here today. And I, I'm hopeful that we said something that was helpful and useful to someone out there. <laughs> it was great. Dr. Folamay, thank thanks you. so much for being on Cancer Fight. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for being with us today on Cancer Fight. Before you go, be sure to check out the podcast description for any resources mentioned in today's episode. And you can let us know your thoughts on this conversation 
by emailing info at kickingbutt.org. Last, for all the latest updates on the project's work, you can follow the Colon Cancer Prevention Project on all social media platforms or visit our website at coloncancerpreventionproject.org. Till next time, fight on, cancer warriors.